find yourself a nice comfortable seat. And first step is just to relax into that seat. collect yourself, so to speak. It's one of the funniest phrases in the English language for a Buddhist. And uh, bring your energy together into your body and straighten up your spine. Neither curved forward nor backward, but upright. And if you're on a cushion, try to get your knees lower than your hips. And then open up your chest, maybe roll the shoulders up and back and then down so that the chest is open. And relax the head, the jaw, relax the whole body without slumping it. Keep that straight upright posture, but then relax on the spine. Tilt the head down slightly. And then direct your eyes into the space in front, as it's said in many Mahamudra texts. Uh, when we first learn meditation practice, we're taught to look, at least in this tradition, look, set your eyes four to six feet in front of you on the ground. So at like about a 95, uh, at a slight angle, maybe 95 degrees, uh, no, 45. in the Mahamudra tradition, almost every text in that tradition says, just look into the space in front of you. And many of them are more precise and say, right into the space in front of you, like literally like a foot or two or maybe three into the space in front of you, which is not easy to do to look at space. It takes some practice, but I've been trying for a while and I find it to be very helpful way to sit, meditate. And then um, spread your gaze out. Look at the periphery, sides, look at the top and bottom without moving your eyes, but just be aware of those. So you have the whole periphery of your, the full circumference of your visual field and then relax. Don't hold it, but just let it be there. Let the jaw be relaxed, the teeth apart, with either the lips apart or gently together, but the teeth slightly apart. Let the tongue float up to the top of the mouth, just behind the teeth or so. The front teeth, that is. just connect with the posture for a little bit.
and then notice your breathing and connect with the breath. Feel the whole breath initially in, all the way in through the body. Ideally breathing into the lower belly, the lower abdomen, lower belly breathing, not just chest breathing. Deep breaths initially filling up entirely and then breathing out and feeling that whole process. And gradually emphasize the out-breath more and more in terms of your attention, placing your attention more and more on the out-breath versus the in-breath. Until gradually we're focused exclusively on the out-breath feeling the sense of letting go, release, expanding outward on the out-breath into the space around us as if we're breathing through all of our pores. And just letting be on the in-breath, just opening, feeling the environment, the space, the light, sound, whatever's going on. And then reconnecting with the body and the next out-breath. Lastly, if you're alive, you will have thoughts. Your mind will be doing its thing. The heart pumps blood. Other organs do their things, and the brain thinks. So just let it think. Don't try to stop it. Don't try to control it. Just notice the thoughts. And to help highlight the nature of thinking, the, the quality of mental activity, the movement, the feeling of it. As you notice yourself thinking, say, label thoughts internally with the word thinking. So you highlight them, punctuate them with that label. And that will also help interrupt the potential for getting caught by them and thereby letting go of them. So let thoughts come and go. In the front door and out the back door, as Suzuki Roshi, I think, is said to have said, without sitting down and serving them tea, just come in, say hello, and goodbye. And through that, expand your awareness in all directions around you, in front, to the sides, above, below, and in particular behind you. In particular, behind you. Feel the space behind you. And I'll stop talking at this point, and we'll sit for another five minutes or so.
Good evening and welcome again. Uh, let's see, we have any uh, new people join us since we entered Deep Samadhi? Christopher Dillon, say hi, please. Tell us where you're dialing in from and uh, how the weather is. Well, I, I still have snow on the ground. I've been in Hudson a lot, so I got home yesterday, which is about 45 miles west of Albany on the Mohawk. Most of you know, I was in the city and that's how I got involved with Derek. And I've made Westchester Meditation Center my home. All right. Can't find a better home than that. Except maybe for Rimi Sedra. <laughs> so uh, good evening again. And let's see, uh, Losar Tashi Delic. A happy, auspicious uh new year have the uh wood wooden dragon it's a great way to start off the year so each class we start off we do a simple little chant that includes uh, uh taking refuge and raising bodhicitta written by Mipam Rimshe, who's uh one of our main reference points and uh then a little chant to Manjushri by Kent Sivrimshe, another one. So I hope you'll join in on that. We say the first one uh, three times. Let's see if I can find it. I've just opened up a huge number of uh, things. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. So, really um, excited to have everybody here join in for this and to be doing this course. As you saw in the write-up, um, we have completed 20 years of Rime Shedra. And uh, as Cynthia mentioned, she's been here from the very beginning. Others from either the beginning, I think Robert, maybe uh, very close to the beginning, and Neil, Robert and Neil. And uh, so it's been a long time. We've done a lot of material in 20 years. And uh, just to um, 
take a quick look at that. I'm bore you with that a little bit. And let's see. So here's all of the courses. We began with um, with uh, Chandra Kirti's um, Madhyamaka Avatara in the spring of 20, 2004. So we completed 2000 for 20 years. And we did that for five sections, five classes. We went through Mipam's Gateway of Knowledge, Jamna Control's books on philosophy and Shamata Vipassana, Treasury Precious Qualities. So we did all these amazing courses and uh, went through a huge amount of uh, wonderful literature, which is the sort of underlying secret agenda of the Remeshedras to get students, practitioners, to read the wonderful texts that there's so many translators now making available from the tradition of these core, classical, amazing texts. And uh, so uh, basically just getting people to read through these and uh, appreciate and understand what's in them. A huge amount of material put together, 36 wonderful source books. <laughs> Some of you have those crowding your shelves, overcrowding your shelves, total of like 58 courses. And here's the breakdown between the Shedra topics, Abhidharma, Logic, View, Path, and Meditation a little history and uh the view is like killing it at 72 percent and then uh meditation at 33. Hmm. that doesn't really add up does that <laughs> i just noticed that what is wrong with my formula yeah, it's Let's all right see. you can figure it out next week <laughs> Add a, little, add a little more logic into it. <laughs> There's overlapping categories. You, you, you can have more than one category for one. There we go. You thought I couldn't do it. Okay. So now we have 46% or 5, 46 in view, 21 in meditation, 14 in logic, and a little bit in Abhidharma in the past and history. So enough of that. You can see that in a different way on the uh, website, which is here. So we celebrate our 20th year. And um, so here's the current course, just so how this works. And uh, we have the syllabus and the curriculum, five-year plan that I uh, put out so far. So then we'll appear here soon as the course recordings and any other handouts. And uh, give it a couple of days between uh, Emily and Morgan for posting the recordings. Here you have some information on uh, Rime Shedra some nice quotes on the importance of practice and study. Uh, courses taught. The world of Chogyam Trungpa. Shedra curriculum. So Shedra curriculum focuses on, let's see, can I make that bigger for everyone? 
you know how to do that, right? On Abhidharma. So the, the wonderful thing, uh, here, I'll do this for now, is that um, I've been uh, sort of on the nerd side of Buddhism from uh, very early on, where uh, reading like just tons of books on Buddhism since I was introduced to Buddhism in 1976. And um, then I studied Buddhism in college. And uh, after going out to Boulder to join the community of Chumpa Rinpoche, meeting him through his books a year and a half before that or so. And um, the, the history is that I was uh, helping coordinate a six-month visit of His Holiness, the 16th Karmapa, to the United States in 1980. And at the end of that tour, Trungpa Rinpoche and his students all said goodbye to him in Chicago. And I walked him onto the airplane with a, what's called a seat cover brocade with Jomgun Rinpoche, who spoke English, His Holiness didn't. And I placed the seat brocade down and he sat down on it. First class, I buckled his, his seat belt. And then he said something to me in Tibetan. And then I looked at Jomgun and Kongshul Rinpoche for translation. He said, His Holiness is inviting you to the Rumtek to, for the first time. He's starting up a Shedra at Rumtek, and he's inviting you to come to it. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, what? And um, I was 21 years old and had, uh, you know, been totally into studying with Trungpa Rinpoche and his community. So unfortunately, I never went there for that but i always like hung out there as like something some sort of karmic connection with shadra and so many years later i decided i would try to sort of uh, um, make good on that karmic connection in some way by uh, studying the shadra curriculum as much as possible and uh, what happened was i um, I came upon an article about the Shadra curriculum, which fascinated me because if you know anything about uh, Buddhist literature, there's just thousands of texts, you know, for a, 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 a tradition that's based on emptiness. There's just like so much said about it. It's bizarre and just so many books. And the amazing thing about the Shadra is that they've boiled it down to five books instead of like reading thousands of books, they read basically five books and commentaries on them or uh, texts that are preparation for them. And I thought that was astounding and decided I wanted to embark upon a program to study those texts and those topics, um, texts related to the core texts. Some of them are not available. At that time, some of them, more of them were not available in English. Now, uh, they're all available except for one in English. And so, uh, embarked on this program to study these texts, and that's why it's organized in that way. And I was about to show you the, uh, the website, which has disappeared. Um, here we go. So, these books are the Abhidharma Kosha, Abhidharma by Vasubandhu, the Pramana Vartika, 
Commentary and Compendium of Valid Cognition by Dharmakirti, Logic, Madhyamaka Avatara, Introduction to the Middle Way by Chandra Kirti, Gaining Certainty in the View of the Middle Way, Abhismaya Alankara, The Ornament of Clear Realization, which is the uh, condensation of all of the Prajnaparamita Sushas in particular, the so-called mother, the great long Prajnaparamita Sutra, the middle one, and the uh, shorter one, the 8,000 line, 8,000, 25,000 stanza, and 100,000 stanza Prajnaparamitas are summarized in this 30-page text by Maitreya in a, a, an astounding way. Uh, so that's the fourth one. And then the traditional suit, uh, Shedra is monastic oriented and they study the Vinaya, the uh, rules for monastics by a gentleman named Gunaprabha. And so I deftly replaced that with um, meditation. And uh, instead we, we study the uh, Uh, sorry, that's too detailed. Uh, anyway, you got the idea that I, I replaced that one with meditation and we study uh, the, the cortex on the meditation, starting with the Buddha's teaching on Shamatha Vipassana in a sutra called Untying the Knots, and then Kamala Shila's stages of meditation that he wrote for the Tibetans when they brought Buddhism to Tibet along with Padmasambhava. So uh, uh, this is in celebration of the 20 years of Rime Shedra. We then turn to this uh, um, really important text that I've been sort of putting off for many years because it has this Vajrayana flavor to it and the Rime Shedra has been uh, basically non-Vajrayana and open to everyone for many years. and. Um, so this book will sort of uh, uh, span Sutrayana and Vajrayana, and I'll get into that in a moment briefly. Um, so this this course will be on uh, continuing the trend of focusing on Shamatha Vipassana, Shamatha Vipassana being the, the root of all meditation in the Buddhist tradition. All meditations can be summed up into either shamatha or vipassana type meditations, which is a, a really interesting thing that was uh, for, uh, first revealed to me by a text by John Gunkonchul in his Treasury of Knowledge. He has a very short little text about uh, also about 30 pages in English where he goes through shamatha vipassana and uh, was one of the two source books for Trungpa Rinpoche. When Trungpa Rinpoche taught his 13 years of seminaries, he taught from, he uh, basically taught from Jamgun Kongchul's Treasury of Knowledge, was his main text. And then Moonbeams of Mahamudra was the other text. And apparently the rumor is that he had a copy of Moonbeams of Mahamudra on his desk in Boulder at all times and uh, would refer to it periodically, just sort of flip through it and pick up quotes because it's just filled with quotes. And uh, in that text by Jamgu Kongshul, 
Treasury of Knowledge, the chapter on Shamatavapashna, he reveals that all meditations are Shamatava or Vipassana. So um, contemplations of loving kindness and uh, um, working with anger, the four immeasurables, all of these are shamatha practices. And then uh, meditations on understanding the nature of um, the uh, self and selflessness, selflessness of persons and selflessness of dharmas. And the different aspects of that are all Vipassana meditations. So I found that very interesting. And uh, so the Shadra topic in this case of Rime Shadra in New York City is um, for uh, meditation is focused on Shamatha Vipassana and looking at all the key texts on Shamatha and Vipassana in the Indo Indian and Tibetan traditions. And uh, this text, like all Mahamudra texts, is organized around Shamatha and Vipassana. And uh, so briefly looking at the um, Let's see the five-year plan, if I can find it. I thought I was saying this course is going to go on for five years. <laughs> well, it's five parts. Okay, so um, Moonbeams of Mahamudra, this I circulated the five-year, oh, it does say five-year curriculum. Interesting uh, little conundrum. Uh, but uh, here's the breakdown of the text, Moonbeams of Mahamudra, which is really called an eloquent elucidation of the way to cultivate Mahamudra, the definitive meaning by a gentleman named Takpotashi Namjel in the 16th century translated by Elizabeth Callahan in the 21st century. And uh, this is the second translation into English and a vast improvement upon the, the first version of that, which many of us struggled with for many years. And it's almost like reading a different book, it feels like, with Elizabeth's wonderful translation. So the first part of this course is Sutra Mahamudra, so the, the, the Mahamudra tradition Starting from Gampopa, he um, elaborated three different aspects or types or levels, um, really types of Mahamudra. And he called them Sutra Mahamudra, Tantra Mahamudra, and Essence Mahamudra. And uh, there's a wonderful book by, when I switch, I just switch, can you see what I switch to? Anyone? I mean, it's uh, three classifications of Mahamudra. Good. Okay. So uh, this is a book by Dzogchen Punla Rinpoche called uh, Wild Awakening, the Heart of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. And there's a chapter in there called Mahamudra, the Great Seal. And he describes the three types of Mahamudra. 
according to Gampopa, Sutra Mahamudra Mantra or Tantra Mahamudra and Essence Mahamudra. And uh, the, the uh, Mahamudra is primarily based on the sutra teachings of the Prajnaparamita in general, and the mantra Mahamudra is based on the um, experience of those teachings within a, a context of Vajrayana practice and study, um, based on uh, the two practices in Vajrayana known as creation stage or development stage and completion stage practices. And then there's this thing called essence Mahamudra, which draws from both sutra and mantra, but is traditionally distinguished as the devotional path based on blessings. So that's sort of just the, the essence of Mahamudra practice. And um, so that leads a little bit to uh, the outline for this five course or for this text is first the Sutra Mahamudra. So we have the practices common to all traditions of um, Buddhism, really, which is why it's called common samadhis. And the word common in English has a connotation of sort of uh, less being lesser. It's a little bit pejorative, and it's, an, uh, in my opinion, somewhat unfortunate translation of the term because it has that implication, whereas it really just means it's shared. These are samadhis that are shared with, uh, among all the Buddhist traditions. And those are shamatha and vipassana as being the uh, basis of all samadhis, and then shamatha and vipassana individually. And that's what we'll go through in this course. And then the supporting instructions of removing doubts about the practice and how it relates to other uh, traditions, way of practicing shamatha and vipassana. So uh, what's missing here is the uh, introduction by the author, which is about 50 pages, and the biography of the, uh, sorry, the introduction by the translator and the introduction um, the biography of the author. So together, all together, we'll, we'll be going through about 175 or so pages in this course of 10 classes, so about 15 to 20 pages per class. The second segment is uh, sort of preparation for Vajrayana Mahamudra, or Mantra Mahamudra, as Dzogchen Pala called it. Uh, preparation interestingly starts off with generating confidence confidence in our ability to understand the view of mahamudra the preliminary practices the common and the, what are again called common and uncommon common are the four reminders of uh, preciousness of human birth and permanence death and the uh, failings of samsara uh, sorry, permanence, death, karma, the working, infallible workings of karma, and uh, then the failings of samsara, and then the inner preliminaries of taking refuge along with generating bodhicitta while doing prostration practice, um, 
repetition of the mantra of Vajrasattva as a purification practice, offering of mandalas as a way to generate merit and generosity in particular, and then guru yoga, a way to uh, connect with the mind of the enlightened ones and generate devotion and longing for that mind. And then Mahamudra approaches approaches particular to that. And then getting into the core practices, uh, starting off with shamatha. And then the next section of the book, book is uh, very explicitly Vajrayana oriented. And so um, I will skip that segment for the general group of us. Um, because there's many of us that will, are not tantricas. Um, so we'll skip the Vipassana pointing out instructions and we'll go straight to the way of deepening the practice, which in my opinion has the most helpful material. These sections of sustaining Mahamudra, eliminating deviations and strains and enhancement, I find are the most helpful um, support for meditation practice ever, anywhere. And then we'll look at the fruition of uh, Mahamudra practice, the four yogas in general, and then the four yogas in detail, which are uh, sort of uh, far, uh, far away in advance, but uh, uh, element and elements that we can relate to as well on our way there. So that's uh, this guy. Mahamudra, just briefly, is uh, um, a, a term that's similar to Dzogchen in that it uh, spans a, a wide range of applications. Mahamudra is a set of practices, specific practices. Um, we just saw it's Mahamudra Shamata, Mahamudra Vipassana, Mahamudra Vipassana, Shamata Vipassana. And Mahamudra is also the term that's used for the result of that practice. Mahamudra is a state of being, and Mahamudra is, a, is also a state of uh, the nature of reality. So we say uh, one, one is practicing Mahamudra, or we can say one has accomplished Mahamudra, or one can say, or we can say one has understood Mahamudra, or seen Mahamudra, or experienced Mahamudra. So the term is used in that wide-ranging way, just like Dzogchen, the Great Completion, refers to a set of very specific practices and also to uh, the, ex the experience and the state as well. And uh, both Mahamudra and Mahati or Dzogchen have general practices and specific practices. And um, the general practices in uh, the realm or world of Mahamudra is the quality of looking at the mind looking at the mind from the point of view of what is this mind and and what makes me think that 
this mind is me. And so Mahamudra starts from that point of view of uh, where am I now and what is my illusion of thinking that I am my mind. When we go through the uh, project of analyzing the self and seeing how the self, um, upon what basis we come up with this idea that we have, um, that there is a self, that we, that I, me, exists. We do that based on some uh, reference, some reference in reference to something. Uh, we don't say that in reference to the objects around us. We say that in reference to the objects so-called inside us or um, that, that define this particular form. And when we go through that in detail, we find that um, we don't apply that feeling of self in reference to uh, our spleen or our appendix or our bladder or our kidneys or our liver um, and so forth. <laughs> in other words, the body. But we really feel that we are our mind. And uh, as we know, there's many movies and books about, you know, uh, doing brain transplants and being the same so-called person in a new body. And so we all think that we're our mind, our consciousness, our awareness. And uh, so um, the, the basic difference between Mahamudra meditation and Sutrayana meditation is that Sutrayana meditation goes through all the details, goes through the uh, process of analysis of the self in great detail, starting with the body, going through all the skandhas, form, feeling, perception, formation, and consciousness. Whereas the Vajrayana traditions of Mahamudra and Dzogchen go right to the very um, source or root or basis of illusion of reality, of uh, that joint root of illusion and enlightenment, the idea of co-emergence, that uh, the, the root of samsara is also the root of nirvana. And instead of uh, analyzing in detail the body and the feelings and, and the other skandhas, we go right to the mind. and. Uh, We'll see, and uh, in this text and in many texts, there's there's a section of determining why it's um, sufficient just to analyze the mind instead of analyzing all those other aspects and skandhas and so forth. Yeah, um, as the tradition of Mahamudra and Dzogchen um, are recognizing that other types of Buddhism other uh, forms of Buddhism do do a much more extensive analysis for the uh, sense of self or uh, intrinsic existence. And instead we focus entirely upon the mind because the mind is that which decides the body and the speech, that which comes up with concepts, that which experiences feelings and so forth. And so the mind is really the source and the root of everything. And so Mahamudra meditation and Dzogchen meditation focus 
exclusively on the mind, looking at the mind. And um, so in general, we can say that uh, they both have a general practice of looking at the mind. And uh, we do this in our shamatha practice from day one in the tradition of Trungpa Rinpoche by noticing our thoughts, labeling our thoughts. And also in the uh, tradition of Trungpa Rinpoche, by not following the in-breath, it provokes um, a very vivid display of the contents of that mind. Any tradition of meditation um, pretty much will have one experience to some extent the contents of mind, but traditions that have a continuous object of meditation, there's a tendency to not pay that much attention to the contents of mind. Whereas in this tradition and in Mahamudra um, and Dzogchen tradition, there's a great attention paid to the quality of the contents of mind in a general way without going into Jungian, sorry, a Freudian analysis. That was a Freudian slip, I think. Without going into detail about your mother and so forth, but instead looking at the the way that we experience the six realms, we go through the six realms in our mind. Um, so the six realms are not just something that's studied about as a uh, after death experience, but as something that we experience day to day, moment to moment in our minds. Seeing how the mind is all important, the mind creates can create in a second we can we can live in hell or we can live in heaven in a second or we can sink into the animal realm in a second in our mind and uh, so the meditation practice is intentionally designed to have a certain level of openness to it where that display can make itself um, visible so to speak and um, and then each of those traditions has a very specific set of practices that follow after that in the in the Mahamudra tradition. Uh, we'll see those. So um, with that as the cue, I'll dive into the detailed contents of the book. It's uh, with these with a text like this. For one, it's so long; it's quite complicated, and it covers a lot of material. The table of contents can be and um, pretty much always is incredibly informative about the the um, the order of practice and the uh, um, sort of framework and understanding of practice. So let's see if I can find the uh, detailed. Here we go. Uh, this is for um, this course. Let's try once again. The third time is a charm, right? Oh. 
Sorry, hold on one second. Okay. So here's the outline of the text. And when we approach this text, and this outline is in your book, along with a table of contents, there's also uh, outlines of the two texts, and the book includes another text. And I'll come back to that. So when we look at these outlines, it's helpful to like scan the whole outline for starters and look at the big categories, right? Noticing the structure of the outline. So there's an introduction as part one, the common samadhis that I talked about. And then there's the uncommon Mahamudra. And then there's a colophon. So this is a this is a condensed version of what's in the book. So it's probably easier for us just to look on screen here, and I'll try not to move around into um, jerky of a fashion, so it's not uncomfortable. And let's see if I make it larger. How's that? So part one, common samadhis, we went through this a little bit, Shamatha Vipassana, the general way of uh, cultivating samadhi in general, the way to cultivate shamatha, the preparation, the objects of shamatha. Now we use the breath, but uh, one doesn't always have to use the breath. The way mindfulness and alertness sustain the object of meditation this is one of the most important aspects of the tradition, of this tradition, of the Buddhist tradition of meditation, is that shamatha consists primarily of these two qualities of mind, mindfulness and alertness. And generally, mindfulness is defined as focused attention on an object, and alertness is defined as generalized awareness of the situation and the object. So the term alertness alerts us to the fact that that generalized awareness becomes a way of um, alerting ourselves to whether we're on the object, whether our mindfulness is functioning to focus on the object or not. Those are the two most important factors in meditation in really every tradition of Buddhism, starting with the Buddha's teaching on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutra. He goes through about 50 different meditation objects in that short little sutra. And after presenting them, in usually in groups of four or so, he has a, 
a refrain that repeats over and over. And the refrain says, one abides mindful and alert. Contemplating whatever the object is in that section of the text, but mindful and alert. And then the way to practice shamatha, the way to cultivate shamatha generally, and then cultivating the view for vipassana. Vipassana is the way to practice the view. And we'll see <clears throat> those of us that have uh, been studying and practicing and training in the tradition of Trumper Rinpoche may be a little unfamiliar with this way of understanding vipassana, where vipassana is uh, to some extent an analytical um, exercise, an analytical practice. And Trungpa Rinpoche's uh, famous, his, his presentation is famous for being called, uh, what, anybody know the, the stock phrase for Trungpa Rinpoche's version of Vipassana? Experiential. That's the type. Yeah. What's the What's the description of it? Uh, Insight. Panoramic awareness. All right. Who is that? Emily. All right. <laughs> That's it, right? Panoramic awareness. I think we've all Trumpites have heard that phrase, right? And uh, there's not a lot of analytical quality in that phrase, but the tr all other traditions of Buddhism sort of unique in that way. All others have an analytical quality to Vipassana. And uh, the Mahamudra tradition in particular acknowledges that there's also a non-analytical style of Vipassana as well as an analytical. And we'll see some discussion of that soon in this outline. So uh, various ways to determine the view. And uh, there's this idea of um, that meditation, Vipassana meditation, insight meditation, is a practice of experiencing the view, the view of the Dharma, the view of the Buddha. And uh, so therefore, it's important that you're, you have a correct view, because if you meditate on an incorrect view, then you... Uh, your fruition is uh, the the experience of uh, incorrect situation, of an untrue situation. So it's it's important that we analyze in the in uh, the Buddhist tradition. Generally, the uh, focus is on first understanding the nature of reality, such as the four noble truths, the little quiz, or the two truths, as this. The, the framework in the Mahayana tradition, understanding the, the two truths, and then meditating on what is it that causes delusion, that causes us to be trapped in suffering or in the relative truth. What is the view of the cause of suffering? There's different ways to determine that view. And then uh, basically the cause of suffering is the belief in a self. That's the root of suffering. The root of samsara is ignorance that believes in a self of persons and phenomena. 
And that belief is first manifests as uh, the root clashes of attachment, aggression, and stupidity. And the most uh, powerful of those in this realm, which is known as the desire realm, is desire. And so the Buddha's famous teachings on the Four Noble Truths, he states that desire is the cause of suffering, because that's the most tangible aspect of the manifestation of suffering. Reasons for meditating on the lack of self or absence, the ways to meditate on the twofold absence of self, meaning the absence of self in persons and phenomena, and uh, the way those meditations generate the view. So it's the sort of circular process between meditation and view. Um, in, in our traditions, in most traditions these days, we begin with meditation, just sit and try to tame your mind, try to tame the monkey mind. And along with that, we study the Dharma, we take classes, we read books, we listen to talks by our teachers. And we contemplate the Dharma. And then we bring, uh, in that way, we bring those together, view and meditation. So we start with meditation, and then we cultivate the view, and then we bring the view into meditation and supplement the view with our meditation. So now, after having identified the view, then uh, we use the meditation to uh, refine the view removing doubts, distinction between analytical meditation and resting meditation. The roles of the, those two types of meditations in Shamatha Vipassana. It's a sort of a radical title right there. Normally, people think, well, analytical meditation is uh, Vipassana and resting meditation is Shamatha. In, in most of the Buddhist tradition, in Trumper Rinpoche world, we would be perplexed and say, well, resting meditation is Vipassana. And analytical is not meditation. <laughs> anyway, so he goes through an interesting discussion on uh, these two qualities of analysis and resting and how those relate to the two types of meditation of Shamatha and Vipassana. And uh, then we go into uncommon Mahamudra, generating confidence, the way to cultivate. In the beginning, and uh, first understanding the greatness of the Dharma, going through the particulars of Mahamudra, how it's presented in different uh, teachings of the Buddha, the sutras and the tantras, in particular how it's taught in the highest tantras, which is known as the Anutra. They will find in this text that there are certain words that begin with an asterisk, <laughs> which is a really cool uh, uh, convention that Elizabeth uses. And some scholars have begun to use translators where um, instead of having an asterisk after the word that indicates that you should look at the bottom of the page for an explanation, the asterisk before a word means that it's uh, it's a, a back construction from one language to another. So we have the Tibetan term for these tantras, uh, but we don't have a definitive term in Sanskrit that matches the Tibetan terms. So that's a back translation. Uh, Mahamudra is the point of all sutras and tantras. So that's the use of Mahamudra as the ultimate nature of reality, as opposed to a practice. 
and uh, then going through the different individuals of the of the lineage of Mahamudra in India and then in Tibet. The preliminaries, the sequence of the of the practice in general, and then we go through the uncommon preliminaries. Uh, sorry, the uh, Uh, so this we're still in the sh in the com so-called common tradition. So what are the preliminaries for practice in the common tradition? Uh, uh, making sure your house is in order, so to speak, your affairs, so that uh, nothing's plaguing you while you're while you're practicing. Way to cultivate Mahamudra, the divisions of Mahamudra, and then. Uh, practice of Mahamudra in this context being the Mahamudra tradition of essence Mahamudra as opposed to mantra Mahamudra. If this was mantra Mahamudra, it would involve creation and completion stage practices. But essence Mahamudra just focuses on Shamatha and Vipassana, that third type of Mahamudra, essence Mahamudra, just focuses on the essence of all practice, Shamatha and Vipassana preparations necessary the physical posture and a way to focus the mind on an object the types of objects and this is a very important scheme that is really helpful to understand for the understanding of uh, the way shamatha is practiced in our tradition in general not only with uh, Mahamudra specifically so there's objects that involve characteristics and objects that don't involve characteristics characteristics are anything that the mind can latch on to to identify something. So as you can imagine, shamatha without characteristics is not easy to practice. And if you start with that, it easily lends itself to dullness, to just going into the world of daydreams or murkiness or the make-believe or sleep. Um, within characteristics, there's characteristics with support and then without support, support means like concrete things, like physical objects. Without support means non, not uh, material things, or not um, concrete material things, such as the breath. Breath is not a, not made out of concrete. Concrete shoes are would be object with support if you would focus on your concrete shoes. Then there's some uh, non-concrete that are not used the breath, that do not use the breath. The importance of tightening and relaxing, not too tight, not too loose. Overall, uh, hugely important uh, instruction for practice. And then overall, the way to sustain stillness with these approaches. We're in the shamatha section. Vipassana, Mahamudra, Shama, Vipassana. Why is it necessary? What are the preparations and the ways? What are the different ways to cultivate Vipassana? And then how do we cultivate Vipassana in this tradition? Uh, the reasons that objectives are achieved. Our objectives are achieved by just observing the mind. And then what is the mind determining it? The essence of the mind, the root, critical to meditating on the mind. What are thoughts? What are appearances? Appearances are shown to be mind. And uh, what is the way that appearances are realized once mind is understood? And, uh, and then what are the objects for the different stages of meditation? 
going through misinterpretations and then differences between when you're actually experiencing Vipassana and when you're not. And then the pointing out instructions determine the state of, uh, the abiding state of mind, stillness, the nature of mind is pointed out. And then uh, co-emergence or co-nameness is pointed out. The simultaneous arising of samsara and nirvana confusion. Question? And, yes, please. I'm sorry, thank you. Didn't you say that this is the part that we're going to be skipping? It is, but I can. Uh, it's helpful to know the general topics in this sure. part. Sure, thank you. But that's, that's a very good point, thanks. So what is the idea of conateness? So um, this is the section that uh, um, really requires uh, having received Vajrayana transmission. And I'm hoping that uh, this will inspire many of us to to do whatever it takes to get that transmission so that we can study this together. But um, I know some of us won't want to do that, and that's fine. Uh, so what is codeness? Still, it's very helpful to understand what is this co-emergent quality of mind that within confusion, there's enlightened, there's the potential for enlightenment within confusion. It doesn't come from somewhere else. It's not like there's two different parts of our mind. One's enlightened and one's conate. And I'm, sorry, one's uh, unenlightened and I'm simply going to tr travel from one to the other. But it's a matter of understanding the co combined version of those and how that manifests in the mind itself in thoughts and appearances. So the mind itself, its essence, the uh, contents of mind are thoughts and the um, the phenomena that um, the mind encounters, appearances. What are some mistakes, problems, and then what is flawless meditation? How to sustain the practice, the, the best part. Once recognition develops, sustaining the meditation is, is necessary. Um, once we understand how to meditate, being able to stay there is not so easy. I think we've all discovered this, that we have little glimpses of what we consider to be true meditation, and then it shifts, then it fades. And it's very hard to stay with that. And so there's a number of different uh, practice instructions that are focused precisely on how to sustain that practice. The, the state of meditation once it is uh, experienced. Again, the key factors of meditation, mindfulness, alertness, and then this other, this third factor, conscientiousness. Very odd term for us in English. It's like conscientiousness is that like being like really pious and religious and it's uh, it's explained as being just generally paying attention to everything that's going on all the time and this is in the the factor that's most applicable to post meditation that creates the continuity between meditation and post-meditation is this idea of just being careful, being uh, constantly paying attention to what's going on. 
And these oil all really boil down to mindfulness. And these are in some ways just three different aspects of mindfulness. Focused attention, general attention, and all-pervading attention. So mindfulness has that three, those three qualities. How to sustain meditation during the session during equipoise and then in post meditation, identifying those as those different experiences and the ways to sustain that during each. And then uh, eliminating deviations and strains. And they have number, you know, lists of lists for everything, right? The four deviations, the three strain, the strains, and the hindrances. And then uh, the conclusion, enhancement, uh, sort of um, re-emphasizing the view and how that is experienced from a developed meditator's point of view, the unborn transparency of mind. What is breakthrough? Breaking through to the unborn transparency. What is breaking? What are we breaking through? The cobwebs of delusion place for breakthrough, the abiding state of the basic nature, what does it consist of looking at the essence of mind? What is it actual breakthrough to the unborn transparency of mind? That's what we break through too. And then blending that experience into being a constant one throughout the day and night. Imagine having that level of awareness while you're asleep while you're dreaming, while you're in deep sleep. I mean, it's hard enough just to do it when you get up from your cushion and go like <laughs> into the next room, but all day long, all 24 hours. Uh, refining, refinement of the experience through conduct that brings all experiences onto the path, such as in the Lojong slogans, uh, bringing all, integrating all experiences onto the path and six types in particular turning bad omens into auspicious ones, transforming mental afflictions, converting obstacles into cities, powers, uh, trans, uh, integrating suffering, transforming suffering into, uh, through practice of bodhicitta, transforming illness into the path by working with the three elements, and then integrating death into the path. And then the four yogas in general, and then in particular, for yogas. So that's the overview of the text, uh, which I think is really helpful to see. And um, the uh, I thought maybe we could. Uh, look at together the forward tonight, the two forwards that are in the book for starters. And also, um, I neglected to say that if you have comments or questions throughout the class each time, just chime in. Don't, don't wait, don't hold them, don't wait till the end. Just chime in. Comments, questions, suggestions. Please offer them up straight away. Don't hold back. Unborn transparency. I, to me, it seems like they're talking about the mind is just a blank slate. Right? Yeah, language. Yeah. 
it, it, that that is one uh, connotation of those words an unborn transparency yeah so there's a tendency to uh, emphasize initially that quality of the um, sort of empty quality of the mind because our predilection is to um, to uh, believe that things exist and so initially we have to uh, initially the the general scheme of the path in Mahayana Buddhism is to counteract that by focusing on the empty essence of the mind and once we understand the empty essence of the mind then we work on the quality the uh, what's called the nature of the mind is being able to cognize anything being able to know and experience anything while it is being empty and so we differentiate three qualities to the mind its essence its nature and the way it manifests and the essence of the mind is empty there's no there's no essence to the mind you can't find the mind and yet it's always there in the sense of constantly being aware of whatever is presented to it we know what we're experiencing we can't we can't deny that and nobody can tell us what we're experiencing or that we're not experiencing we we are constantly experiencing even though there's no experiencer that can be found so the empty essence the, the nature is illuminating uh, not in the sense of light but in the sense of the metaphor that light is sheds light on whatever appears before the mind and the mind knows whatever appears to it and then the third quality is how does the mind manifest the mind manifests as all the appearances that we we uh experience the six realms or the buddha fields depending upon which side of the co-emergence of confusion and liberation we tend to we decide to take moment by moment Thank you for that, Chris. Anything else? Any other comments, questions? I'll pause for a little bit. I have a question, Derek. Yeah, hi. Hi. Um, we did that short meditation in the beginning, and um, <clears throat> I seem to struggle with this place where um, maybe I get in a state of dullness, but I don't know it. And I'm wondering if you have any comments this early on about how to distinguish dullness. Yeah, yeah. Well, the first step, which you seem to have done is to recognize dullness and that's a huge step actually uh, often uh, meditators will um, get to a place in their meditation practice where the the so-called so waterfall uh, fall rather <laughs> waterfall of thoughts or the barrage of thoughts is no longer raging fiercely and we have tamed our mind to a little bit of extent um, and when we get through that barrage there's a feeling of relief of like when our mind slows down a little bit it's like oh wow 
wow, peacefulness. It feels nice. And the initial tendency is to relax, which is a great thing to do, is to relax. However, our uh, body, speech, and mind, our uh, habitual pattern is that when we relax, we get dull. And so the, the key is to be, is to figure out how can we be relaxed and alert at the same time. And we can try this outside of meditation. It's actually really helpful to try to be relaxed and alert. So like um, impartially watching situations in a, in a, where you don't have anything vested in it. You're just like watching, uh, like maybe you're totally not into football and you're, somebody else insists on watching the game, whatever that means. And so you watch these uh, humans running around on the field with these beautiful costumes on and hitting each other in a totally disinterested way. And you can relax and see the patterns of their movements and, and uh, but still be alert. You know, so try to be relaxed and alert. And in meditation practice, it's helpful to uh, use the vibrancy of our sense experience to help us remain alert while relaxed. So when we're in that stage of uh, our practice where the barrage has eased off a little bit and we have a little bit of peace, instead of falling into a so-called sand trap, Try to experience the quality of light in the room or the sounds that you're being exposed to. Or uh, what I find the most helpful is the subtle vibration of energy in the body, of uh, the, the, uh, the sensation of feeling that spreads throughout uh, our skin, all over our skin, creates a very subtle vibration. Um, so those sort of things, I think, are very helpful to uh, create vibrancy in the practice. And it's key that our practice have vibrancy, be vivid and strong and clear. So otherwise, Vipassana cannot rise from that in a genuine way. Thank you. So that's a great uh, issue, great, great topic. Thank you for raising that. What else? Anyone else? a question i'm not sure if i'll be able to articulate it clearly but i'll try you said it's important to have the correct view when we practice because otherwise you, i'm not exactly sure what the my message i don't know like understand incorrectly or experience incorrectly is that kind of where you were going with that um exactly yeah and this has been an ongoing question for me i think is um how are you not then predetermining what you experience if there's a correct and an incorrect view? Like, how would it be possible to have a, like a mis-experience of reality if reality is just reality? Like, it just, it seems like that statement is almost, uh, yeah, predetermining what we yeah. find. Yeah, it's like, it's like a, it's a conundrum. It's a conundrum, right? And uh, so, uh, for example, if you have a view that you are, um, uh, you have a soul, and that your soul is pure, and if you purify your soul, you will um, 
be reborn in heaven when you die. And you meditate on that, you can very easily and well experience that sense of uh, pure soul, of having a pure soul and having an essence. And in essence, most religions other than um, other than Buddhism are focused on purifying your soul while uh, thinking that you have a soul that can be purified. And so you can meditate on, on having determined the way things are. You can meditate on that. And then, uh, as you say, it's like you're predetermining your experience. You sort of hypnotize yourself into experiencing whatever you decide is uh, the correct view of reality. So how is Buddhist meditation not just more of the same? Yeah. How, how is it that we're not just like predetermined, okay, there's no self, and I'm going to hypnotize myself into experiencing that. I'm going to convince myself of that, and then I'm going to meditate on it. It's going to be true. <laughs> I know it's true because I read it. I wrote it down, and then I read it. <laughs> um, and the idea is that in Buddhism, we're... we're um, striving to understand or, or we cultivate, let's say we study the view that everything is created by our mind and that everything is a mental creation. And so our view is that we have to go beyond having a view. And so our meditation is, is oriented towards going beyond whatever the view was that we began with. And so we're sort of using the term view in two ways. In one sense, we have a view for our practice, um, which you might say is like a plan for our practice. Our plan for our practice is to go beyond the sense of any conceptual viewpoint. And then our viewpoint is, well, there's no self. And uh, so we're going to explore that idea that concept of self and selflessness in our meditation practice <clears throat> with the understanding that our, our experience is conceptually contrived. All of our experience is conceptually contrived. And that the only way out of that loop is to leap into non-conceptual world, leap beyond conceptuality. And so the plan type of view for our practice is to go beyond conceptuality. And so our practice ultimately is investigating the whole idea of conceptuality, the whole idea of view or plan or thinking. And by doing that, not finding anything and thereby letting go of all presuppositions any any ideas of the way things are. So thereby stepping out entirely of this idea of there being a view of anything. And uh, Nagarjuna, the uh, grandfather or progenitor of the uh, middle way view in, in the Buddhist tradition is famous for starting his text on uh, the middle way by saying, I prostrate to the teacher, uh, the uh, omniscient Buddha, he who had no views. 
so the idea in the in the middle way tradition of the Mahayana, which basically all of Tibetan Buddhism comes from, is that we go beyond view, we, because view is a conceptual creation. And so we use the development of the view as a uh, technique to help us get beyond view. And the more refined we can make that view, the easier it makes it for us to leap into the realm beyond view. So you're saying the map is not the territory. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Some of the territory is off the map. That's great. <laughs> the map is not the territory. Yeah. What else? Anything else? Okay, so just briefly, the, the syllabus for this course had um, has the translator's introduction, so we'll go through the meaning of Mahamudra. Uh, we'll talk about Gampopa and his way of presenting Mahamudra. Uh, this way of distinguishing Mahamudra from the teachings of a certain individual who is uh, common in Tibet in the 8th century. Idea of non-tantric Mahamudra. Go and talk about the author, his life and times, and talk about the text. And the main text in the book and the subsidiary text is the text by the ninth Karmapa Wangchuk Dorje called Dispelling the Darkness of Ignorance. And uh, the ninth Karmapa I should find out his dates, but I'm pretty sure he's after Tashi Namgyal. He uh, wrote three main texts on Mahamudra. One is, the middling one is this text called Dispelling the Darkness of Ignorance, which is in this text at the back, and we'll use it periodically support for support of contemplation, meditation, to, at the beginning of class. And uh, the longer one is the one I mentioned earlier called uh, Mahamudra, the Ocean of Definitive Meaning. And that's uh, another text of like about 400 pages or so in English, three to 400. And it has like a series of 60 or so exercises, sessions. The, the entire uh, progression of Mahamudra Shamatha and Vipassana, pretty much the same material that this book goes through that we just saw in that outline, is presented in chunks, session one, two, three, and four, and so forth, in a very practice-oriented way. Some other parts of the, the translator's introduction that are more technical, and then a biography of the author, and then the texts. So that's what this first class, uh, first course encompasses. And um, uh, if we can just go over time a few minutes, just read very briefly the forward from the 17th Karmapa. Mahamudra is the practice of the heart of all Kagyu traditions, brought to Tibet directly from India by the great Kagyu forefather Marpa, the translator, and practiced by his disciple Jetson Milarepa. It then flourished under Lord Gampopa. Now, it's also the hard practice of other traditions of Tibetan Buddhism, 
the Balukpa and the Sakya traditions. Basically, all the traditions of the so-called new transmission of Buddhism in Tibet after the persecution in the 11th century or 10th century. This practice very much emphasizes working with the mind. The stages of Mahamudra path in this tradition are known as the four yogas. One-pointedness, freedom from elaborations, one taste, and non-meditation. All of the stages of the paths and bhumis. So when they say paths and bhumis, he's talking about the five paths. And we'll encounter this again, but just briefly, accumulation, preparation, seeing, familiarization or meditation, and no more learning are the five paths. And we'll go through this. This will come up over and over. And the Bhumis are Bhumis number one through 10, with the 11th, so-called 11th Bhumi being enlightenment. And Trungpa Rinpoche, for those of you who know his and study his works, goes through these in Profound Treasuries. Volume 1 and 2, in the end of each, he has a section on the paths and stages. All of those stages are explained through the conditions of your mind. Ultimately, this brings about a direct connection between you and the nature of your mind. And this focus on the mind should not lead one to think that we neglect the body, by the way. The... the uh, uh, the way we relate to our body is extremely important, uh, helpful, and uh, valuable, essential for successful practice of Mahamudra. This book contains fresh translations of two of the most important texts in the Kagyu Mahamudra traditions. Although the first text, Mah Mah Moonbeams of Mahamudra by Takpanatashi Namgyal, was composed in the 16th century. I like the way he says that, although it's composed four centuries ago, or five, it's still regarded as the definitive guide to Mahamudra, providing the blueprint for the practice itself and also clearly explaining the scriptural authority and logical reasonings that support the practice. So, Mangchuk Dorje, Ninth Karmapa's text on Mahamudra does not really do that, doesn't give tons of scriptural citations and support for each point and go through the logic of each aspect of the practice and stage of the path. Takpotashi Namgyal does that. So you can either consider that to be laborious <laughs> or you can appreciate that support as a really a help, really helpful way of really understanding the topics and why you do the different aspects of the practice and how they are beneficial. Um, and also clearly explaining, sorry, the second text, text dispelling the darkness or ignorance is the middle length, medium length part of the ninth Karmapa Wangchuk Dorje's Mahamudra trilogy, a comprehensive text full of practical instructions, which complements Tashi Namgyal's. I'd like to thank the translator, Elizabeth Callahan, who has invested so much time and effort in this work. She has researched the material extensively and has been able to draw on many years of practice under the guidance of Kenshin Sulchum. Gyamso and Kenshin Trongu Rinpoche. So I have the great honor of uh, studying with Elizabeth Callahan. And if you uh, have that occasion, I encourage you to pursue that as well. She tends to give courses on ocean that are restricted to tantricas. 
um, and sort of go through different parts of the book. And so this, the set of courses is a little bit more uh, down to earth in the sense of just going from A to Z, from one to whatever the last page is in this book, going through the whole thing in a, in a very methodical way for uh, both tantricas and non-tantricas. And uh, in my mind, this is preparation for then studying with her because she then uh, really brings out the deeper points in an unbelievable way for uh, more advanced understanding. Finally, it is important that anyone reading this text bears in mind that it's a highly regarded practice book through which many people have attained direct realization and as such is not to be treated lightly. It is my aspiration that all who read it will be inspired to follow the Mahamudra path practiced by these great masters diligently. The 17th Karmapa, Ogyen Trinley Dorje, New York, <laughs> August 5th, 2018. <laughs> so that's what he was doing. <laughs> um, uh, Kenshin Sultram uh, Gyamso Rimshe also was, a, uh, along with Tronga Rimshe, two other great teachers in the Kagyu tradition teaching Mahamudra. And uh, Ken, uh, Kenshin Tronga Rimsha has numerous books on Mahamudra, including a book on this text. And uh, Kenpo Sotum Gyamso Rimsha, his, he taught extensively on this, on uh, the uh, Mahamudra um, Ocean of Definitive Meaning by Wangchuk Dorje at Karmacholi for 13 years, along with many other topics. And I had the privilege of being there for those teachings. And uh, unfortunately, they're not widely accessible at this time, but hopefully sometime in the future we can make those accessible. So anyway, that's the introduction to this. And um, those of you that are new, um, check out at least one more class before you decide whether to come or go because um, you'll see that uh, basically I just read through the text and add some commentary to it. So um, if you're uh, expecting like uh, like often when we take courses the teacher um, gives talks each time. I do not do that so I hope that's not too disappointing to people but We'll just read through it all together and talk about it. So thank you everyone for coming. Let's just close with the uh, dedication of merit chance. <laughs> if I can find them. Let's see. By this merit may all attain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory.
Thank you, everyone. So I'll circulate each week. For those of you that are new, I'll circulate each week the readings beforehand and then the Zoom link just before class. Suggestions, questions, whatever, most uh, very much welcome. Take care and hope to see you again soon. Thank, Thank you. you. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Thank, Thank you, Derek. Thank you. Thank you so much.